0: Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning. And uh, with the, uh, a long weekend, uh, looks like a few people are away or maybe ill, we're not sure. But I uh, want to welcome everyone here this morning. I want to uh, welcome uh, Russ Cottonwar and his uh, family uh, this morning uh, to be with us. And, uh, and he will be speaking this morning uh, as Ian is on vacation while uh, he and Miranda wait for the coming of their little ones. So we would be a prayer for that. Uh, we have a couple of announcements uh, here this morning. We have uh, uh, coffee time out back after, after the service. And if you could uh, remember to just uh, turn down your cell phone. And uh, <laughs> we all get caught with that every so often. But uh, if we could remember that and uh, Memorial Day Parade uh, tomorrow, and uh, the parade, Rain or Shine, and so uh, if anybody would like to help out with that or have any kids uh, that want to uh, walk in it, et cetera, uh, we welcome any and all participation there. Uh, any other, Oh, and the uh, special note, uh, Baptism Sunday, on June 13th at Lake St. George, and we're gonna be having a, our, um, our service over there uh, instead of having a service here, and then going over to the lake, we're going to be having the service there, uh, and then the baptism to follow, and some refreshments afterwards. So uh, we're, we haven't had one of those for a few years, so uh, we're excited to be able to do that. Uh, any other announcements that need to be made this morning in particular? All right. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. A little overcast and cloudy, but we're glad and appreciative and thankful that you're here this morning with us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that indwells us. We pray that you would help us this morning, that you would uh, quiet our hearts, as, as especially on this uh, long weekend, uh, so many different things going in uh, different directions to go in. and We all get so busy sometimes, but we pray that you would quiet our hearts this morning, that you would help us to listen to your word and that we would be doers of your word and not just hearers only, and that we would be uh, a lighthouse uh, wherever we are for you. I pray that you just uh, watch over everything that we say and do this morning, uh, and that uh, you would be glorified and honored here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 <clears throat> Our scripture reading this morning is found in Psalm 29. If you'd like to follow along with me, Psalm 29. And uh, we used to sing a song for verse one, ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones. I don't know if we've sung that for a while, but I thought of it this morning. (laughs) Psalm 29, ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones. Ascribe to the Lord. Glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf, Syrian like a, a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashings of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word today. Amen? Amen. 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 And let's turn and sing all three verses of 139. Great is thy faithfulness. Let's stand and sing 139. number 308 and there is a redeemer number 308 let's sing the uh, let's just sing the first and the second verses of 308 Thank you and would the ushers come forward for the morning offering please? Would you pray,
1: please? Lord, we thank you for the
0: offering As He you said. We're only giving back a little portion of what you've given us. But we do pray that they'll be used to promote your gospel here on this planet, and that people will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we also pray for the baby that everything will go all right. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And you may be seated. We will sing our, we will sing our, our hymn before the uh, message uh, after, after the morning prayer. Um, I have a couple of, uh, I have a couple of uh, prayer cards here, uh, and uh, are there any other requests uh, as we come into uh, our prayer time that uh, you would like to make this morning? Yes, Jane. Mm. Um, and she wants prayer for that. And then she does, so I should also you to give her a call when you're able to have her number mm. here. I think she is Jamie's Jamie. mom. Yep. Jamie, Turner, um, Jamie Fuller's mom. Right. Got it. Excellent. Anything else this morning? Somebody over here. Maybe? Okay. Yes. Any other requests this morning?
1: Kevin, we pray for Amanda and
0: his? Hmm, okay. Absolutely, any other requests this morning? All right, well let's go to the Lord in prayer and uh, why don't we spend just a moment in silent prayer. Uh, and then we will and then i will pray let us pray our dear lord and heavenly father we thank you for this day and we thank you for this weekend and of Memorial Day and when we consider our, our nation and consider those uh, that have fought and died for our country over the years that we might be free and for their their willing sacrifice for us. We thank you that we live in a, a country where we are free and although we see at times, we see uh, our freedoms and our liberties slipping away and our freedoms being legislated that, that you can only do these things in these places and, and, uh, and that you can have freedom of religion, but not everywhere, but only in church. We pray that you would just watch over our country that you would help us to remain strong. We pray that you would watch over our those in power both locally and in the state and in our national government that, uh, that they would be watching over, watching out for our freedom and that uh, we would continue to be a nation, one nation under God that is free. We pray that you would help us not to take our our Christianity lightly. In so many countries, people are persecuted and killed and tortured for their faith. And and uh, and we don't even oftentimes uh, take the time to share the gospel with somebody that's in need. We pray that you would just help us to be more faithful to you in our everyday life and we think of this time that we can come to you in prayer and we thank you that you are the great physician, that you watch over each one of us and you know our, our uh, individual situations, you know our needs and we think right now of Anita's sister and uh, her health issues and we pray that you would just uh, watch over her. And we pray for recovery there And we pray also for uh, Susan Fuller and some of her health issues as well and health issues of those in our family and those around us. We pray that you would help us to reach out to those that are in need, that we might be an encouragement, that we might uh, be an encouragement for the gospel, that people might come to know you uh, through our lending a hand when people are in need. And pray for the family of the Palmer family today as they have uh, the uh, funeral for gene and difficulty difficult time when you lose a loved one and we pray that you just watch over that family we don't know his uh his spiritual condition, but uh, we pray that uh, um, that you would be uh watching over his family and that uh, and that through this time that if there are those that uh do not know you that uh, that they would question their own mortality, and as often happens during a funeral, we pray also that you would watch over at Miranda, uh, Amanda and the children this morning. And she's been going through uh, some difficulties, and uh, we miss seeing her here. And as part of the body. When one part is missing, it's hard for the whole body to function well, and we just miss her so much and all that she was able to, all that she brings to the church and her children, et cetera. So we pray that you would watch over her and we don't know the situation, but you do, and you know so much more than any of us know, and you also know the thoughts and intents of our hearts as well, and so Lord, I pray that you would watch over this situation this morning and that, um, and that possibly through this that you might uh, bring her back to our fellowship and back to you. And we pray that you would watch over our service this morning. and We thank you for Russ Cottonwire is able to be here this morning. And we pray that uh, you would just bless our time today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Ah, 434, revive us again, and now you may stand up. 434, revive us again, amen. Let's sing the first and the last
1: verses. We praise thee, O God, for the Son of thy love. Lord Jesus. us again.
0: You may be seated. Thank you. We're pleased to have, uh, I <sighs> have to take a, take a breath here. I apologize. I'm a little out of breath. I'm <clears throat> um, pleased to have uh, Russ Cottenwire here with us this morning. Uh, many of you have heard him on, on the radio, on WBCI, etc. And I have uh, known of Russ uh, indirectly for many, many, many years. Uh, and he actually went to, uh, um, got to know my brother, uh, Bruce, many, many years ago and uh, started um, attending uh, First Baptist Church of West Gardner, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, and after he had been there for, uh, for a time uh, he went off to Bible College uh, to get to know all of the other people that we know from uh, New England Bible College, including Pastor Steve and Dan Coffin and, and a number of other people. And, uh, and so we uh, just want to thank Russ for coming this morning, and, uh, and God bless you.
2: Well, it's indeed my pleasure to be here. I want to thank you for inviting me, or Ian, and uh, I've known Ian since. Well, actually, I knew his parents before he was born, <laughs> and it seems just strange for me to be sitting here, standing here, preaching in a church that he now pastors, and uh, watching him as he gets ready to have his own child, and um, and of course I did know Steve, um, your former pastor, and we. Uh, I, he was one of the first guys I met when I went to Bible college, and uh, so it is indeed an honor and a privilege for me to be here this morning with you. Let's take a moment to pray uh, before we look at the word here, and uh, I'd like you uh, to be ready to uh, turn to Matthew 14 when it uh, when we're through with the prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day and for your word, which you have preserved over the years for us, so many years, Lord God, you speak to us through it. I pray that your Holy Spirit would use it to convict, confront, and to comfort us, Lord God, wherever we need it. Um, be with us here today, Lord God, and use the, the things that I say, Lord, um, uh, to further our, our uh, development, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, your Son. And I, uh, we love you, Lord And we give you all the glory and the praise today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in his book, A View from the Zoo, author Gary Richmond shares his experiences as a zookeeper and veterinarian's assistant at the famed Los Angeles Zoo. And one of the stories that has always held a place in the back of my mind describes the strange process involved in the birth of a giraffe. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but the first thing to emerge are the baby giraffe's front hooves and head. And a few minutes later, uh, the plucky newborn calf is hurled forth, falls 10 feet, and lands on its back. Within seconds, he rolls to an upright position with his legs tucked under his body, and from this position, he considers the world for the very first time and shakes off the last vestiges of the birthing fluid from his eyes and ears. The mother giraffe lowers her head long enough to take a quick look, and then she positions herself directly over the calf, and she waits for about a minute, and then she does the most unreasonable thing. She swings her long, pendulous leg toward the baby outward and kicks her baby so that it is sent sprawling head over heels, now, I hope you don't do that, Miranda. Right, But when it doesn't get up, the violent process is repeated over and over again. The struggle to rise is momentous. As the baby calf grows tired, the mother kicks it again to stimulate its efforts. And finally, the calf stands for the first time on its wobbly legs. Then the mother does the most remarkable thing. She kicks it off its feet again. Now why, you may ask. Well, she wants it to remember how it got up. In the wild, baby giraffes must be able to get up as quickly as possible in order to stay with the herd where there is safety. Lions, hyenas, leopards, and wild hunting dogs all enjoy young giraffes and they'd get it too if the mother didn't teach her calf to get up quickly and get on with it. I thought about the birth of the giraffe many times, and I can see it's parallel, the author writes, in my own life. There have been many times when it seemed that I had just stood up after a trial only to be knocked down again by the next trial. Right now, especially after this whole coronavirus thing, Some of you might feel like a baby giraffe. One trial after another, and just when you think you finally regained your footing, another shot to the shins leaves you sprawled on the ground, flinching in fear. Disappointment, disillusionment, disablement, maybe some discouragement, they all spring from one thing, fear. Fear of being alone to deal with these problems, Fear of being swamped by another storm, fear of forfeiting the ministry to which God may have called you to, or even fear of abandoning the faith. Ironically, like the mother giraffe, God does not want us to give up. He wants us to get up. Amen? Amen. The very thing that leaves us looking up from the ground is what God often uses to help us to remember how to get up and to walk with him in his shadow, and under his care. Now, whether you're talking about how the church will engage in ministry post-pandemic or doing life in general as a Christian, it is all much the same. The setbacks are, are not designed to cause us to fear, but to teach us faith. I've learned one thing in the last year. It is that the greatness of our fear shows the littleness of our faith. And many times Jesus uses stormy seas in, in our lives as his pathway to peace. The key to dealing with fear, whether it's in your family or in the ministry or through a crisis, is to catch sight of Jesus in and through that storm, that crisis. As Christians, called by Christ to be his ministers in a storm-tossed world, it will help us to learn how to alleviate that fear, Fear in the storms can be alleviated by faith in the Savior. So if you're there, I'd like, uh, or if you're not there, I'd like you to turn to Matthew 14, if you would. And I'm going to read down through verses 22 to 33 this morning. Would you follow along? Matthew 14:22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately... Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Now I want you to notice the contrasting scenes in this text. It's like watching a movie flipping back that keeps flipping back and forth between characters. On the one hand, we have a picture of complete chaos, and on the other, Absolute control. In the boat, there's confusion, there's panic. On the mountain, there's quietness and peace. Though through the disciples, we see fearfulness. We see the fearfulness of our fragile humanity, and in Christ, in this text, we see the power of sovereign deity. It's the picture of life. And the $64,000 question is, where is God in your life when life gets stormy? That's what we all want to know. Maybe you're asking that question this morning. If so, you're not alone, and don't let anyone tell you that that question is not spiritual, that you're not spiritual if you're asking that question. Growth in Christ requires that those tough questions be asked. Is that right? Jesus loves it when we ask him questions. Why? Because for that split second that we're asking him questions, we're looking to him for answers. I'm intrigued by one former pastor's uh, insight. He He wrote this. He wrote, I often meet people who are waiting to follow God until they have all their questions answered. And he says, they'll be waiting a long time because if we knew everything, we wouldn't have to follow God. We'd be God. He continues, questions are not scary. What is scary is when people don't have any. Questions bring freedom. Freedom that I don't have to be God and I don't have to pretend that I have it all figured out. I can let God be God. God is bigger than any one of our questions, isn't he? But often it's not the questions that get us, it's our fears that get us. And yet God is also bigger than any of our fears. There are a handful of things about the person of Christ in this text that I believe will encourage every one of us in the midst of our fears, and I want to highlight five of them. We're only going to go through three today. I'm going to finish up with the rest of them next week. That's right, you get me for two weeks. How's that? <laughs> the first thing is this. In times of separation, okay, when we feel separated from, from Christ, and disconnected, and we think he's far from us, in times of separation... His divine position relieves our disappointment. That's in verses 22 and 23. Look at that. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, by the way, in case you're wondering. Immediately, it says, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there Now, Matthew says that Jesus made them get into the boat. This is a very strong word in the the original language. It means that he compelled them, he commanded them to leave ahead of him. And he was going to stay behind. The implication is, reading between the lines, is that they didn't want to leave. But he had to compel them to do so. They may have even argued with him a little bit. Well, why do you want us to leave, Jesus? And the greater context helps us here. Everything was going great. If you you read the context ahead of verse 22, you find out that they had just fed 5,000 people. Saw this miracle take place. 5,000 men plus women and children. Actually, more than 5,000 people. The crowd was super excited. They were becoming increasingly popular among the people. And I'm sure the disciples were thinking, why should we leave now? Well, it was necessary for them to leave. From his divine perspective, Jesus saw the need to get them out of a situation that was going the wrong way. And You might be thinking, what situation was going the wrong way? Jesus just fed probably 25,000 or so of them. Well, one of the reasons he sent them away is recorded by John in his gospel. In John chapter 6, in verses 14 to 15, it says, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, the feeding of the 5,000, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world, so Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Some insight there. They needed to get away from this feverish crowd, and Jesus knew it because probably they were getting caught up in all the popularity. Now, I know this is pure speculation, but given the disciples' character traits, if you study them and you know how they are and what we know about them, Jesus likely sent them away to deliver them from the temptation of earthly popularity, this Christian celebrity syndrome. They probably didn't want to go. They enjoyed the action. They loved the attention. They undoubtedly feared Christ's absence, don't we? But Jesus forced them out, kind of like the mother giraffe, for their own good. A couple of things surface here. first one is this. We're stabilized, I think, by Jesus' sensitivity in the midst of our fears. Sometimes Jesus sends us out of the excitement, and we don't like it. Success invigorates us. Popularity propels us, no matter what we're involved in. We enjoy the approval and the affirmation of people don't we and as people we often live by sight and not by faith but Jesus is sensitive to what we need and often does the unthinkable against what we often want to do he sends us out into the night of storms and doubts into what Saint John of the cross once referred to as the dark night of the soul you've heard of that right An anonymous English writer called it the dark night of faith. George Fox described the experience this way. He said, quote, when it was day, I wished for night, and when it was night, I wished for day, unquote. This is sort of a spiritual Sahara of the heart, as Richard Foster put it. In this desert that we find ourselves in, we doubt. We begin to doubt doubt. We feel abandoned by everyone, including God. Our hope begins to evaporate and our dreams begin to die. And here we struggle and we wrestle and we hurt and we find it frustrating to even pray sometimes. With the psalmist, we cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do you refuse to help me or listen even to my groans? Didn't Jesus say that from the cross? Day and night I keep on weeping, crying for your help, but there is no reply. That's Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. But you know, Jesus' mercy and love for us are still strong, unfailing, and we're never out of his sight, even though we may feel that we are. Through it all in an incredibly paradoxical way, by threatening to destroy our faith, Jesus purifies our faith. He will teach us if we let him in this situation to find fulfillment in him rather than indulging our own ego which tends to edge God out. That's what I say ego stands for, edging God out. Jesus not only sends his disciples away but he sent the crowds away as well, the ones whom he had just fed he burst their messianic bubble. Maybe the crowd's enthusiasm was a temptation, not only for the disciples. Did you ever think it might have been a temptation for Jesus? He was, after all, human. In Hebrews 4.15 says he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Kind of reminds me of the temptation that he experienced at the hand of the devil at the beginning of his ministry when the devil said, hey, I'll take you up on this mountain, show you all the kingdoms of the world, and I'll give them all to you if you just bow down and worship me. Jesus' original intent was to go up to the mountain alone to pray. That's what Matthew 14, 13 says. Now, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the city. So Jesus was going to grieve the death of his cousin John the Baptist. He was going up to the mountain to pray, and all these crowds followed him. There were the urgent needs of ministry. However, when it got out of hand, when the glory started coming, Jesus knew he had to get alone with his father. Because being in the limelight might be good for a time, but the key to spiritual strength and health is not in the time you spend on center stage, but in the time you spend in the prayer closet. Is that right? Jesus went up to the mountain alone to pray. And do you ever wonder what he was praying for? Think about that, speculate what he might have been praying for. You know what I think? I I think he prayed for his father's will to be done, because we know that from Scripture. He always wanted to do his father's will. I think he prayed for his own strength, for the things that he was about to endure. I think he prayed for the crowds, that they might see their spiritual needs rather than just meet their physical needs. He might have prayed for his disciples, which I think he probably did, And this is a great thought, but I think he might have prayed for us. The disciples yet to be. And at least that's his pattern in John chapter 17. If you read through it, you find that's how Jesus prayed. Jesus always prays for his own, which tells me we're not only stabilized by his sensitivity, but we're secure in his prayers too. Amen? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says that he is able to save forever all who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. I love the way the message puts it. He says that Jesus, Eugene Peterson paraphrases it like this He says, Jesus said, I'm always on the job to speak up for them. And we know that to be true. In Luke 22, when Satan stormed Peter and sifted him like wheat, what did Jesus say? But I have prayed for you, Peter. I've prayed for you, Peter. The fact that Jesus continually prays for you and me should help alleviate at least some of our fear, shouldn't it? He may send us out knowingly into the storm, but we don't have to be afraid. We're stabilized by his sensitivity. We're secure in his prayers. And in times of separation, his divine position relieves our disappointment. Secondly, in this text, I believe we see that in times of storms, his divine protection relieves our disillusionment. That's verses 24 and 25. Again, But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. So the disciples left, somewhat reluctantly, I think. Now they were a long way off, alone, in the middle of a raging storm at sea. John chapter 6, 19 says that they were about three to four miles out, if you compare the passage. Now, you gotta know that the entire trip along the shore to their destination, which was Bethsaida, was only about three miles total. So they were blown way off course. Matthew says that they were being battered, it says in verse 24, by the waves. Literally, this word means that they were being tortured and tormented by the waves. Mark chapter six and verse 48, says that they were straining at the oars because of it. And they knew these waters. They were experienced sailors and fishermen, but this storm actually threw even them into a panic. They couldn't rely on their own abilities. It wasn't working for them. They couldn't even rely on Jesus because he was up on the mountain. He wasn't even with them. At least they couldn't see him they were disappointed and disillusioned and desperate, and they were fearful and exhausted and beaten. They were experiencing what Max Lucato calls a doubt storm. I love that word, the doubt storm. We all have them, don't we? Doubt storms are turbulent days when the enemy is too big and the task is too great and the future is too bleak and the answers are too few. You ever had one of those? ever ask the question, where are you in this, God? Where are you in this? And when you ask that question, you're usually deep in a doubt storm. Sometimes in the thick of it, we fear that we're all alone in a sinking boat with no hope of survival. But friends, the facts are contrary. Even in a doubt storm the size of a global pandemic, Jesus is there, and we're secure in his sight. What the disciples didn't know and what we often forget is that Jesus always sees us even though we can't see him. Amen? That's what Mark 6.48 says, parallel passage to Matthew's, Matthew's passage. It says, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Now, even in the midst of straining at the oars, trying with everything they've got to stay afloat, when the winds of life's storms trash us, and we're absolutely convinced that Jesus is nowhere around because we can't see him or sense him, Jesus sees us. So in the agony of a stormy marriage, he sees you. In the stress of losing a job, he's watching you. In the frustration of financial distress, he's praying for you. In the trauma of physical pain, he's hurting with you. In the emptiness of emotional depression and the turbulence of a personal tragedy and the uncertainty of life in general, you know what Jesus is doing? He's praying. He sees, and finally he comes. We're not only secure in his sight, but we're strengthened by his grace. That's what it says in verse 25 here. It says, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. It's stated so matter-of-factly in Matthew. That's because it's nothing for Jesus to waltz right into the stormiest time of your life and meet you right there in the center of that storm. Aren't you glad we have a God who can't sit still when the storm gets too rough for us? I am. Sometimes he waits till the fourth hour of the watch, right? But he's still, he can't sit still. He's got a record of doing that kind of thing, you know. In Exodus chapter 3, in verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. In Psalm 116, we read these words in verses one to four. I love the Lord for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy because he turned his ear toward me. I'll call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, save me. And in Psalm 138 verse three, on the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. We're secure in his sight. We're strengthened by his grace, but often we're stretched by his timing, aren't we? Again, verse 25, it says, the fourth watch of the night is when he came. You know what happened? Jesus waited. He waited. He waited a long time. He didn't come until the fourth watch. Now the Romans divided the night into four watches. The first one was 6 to 9 p.m., then 9 to 12, then 12 to 3, and then 3 to 6 o'clock in the morning was the fourth watch. Jesus sent them away during the first watch at 6 o'clock or so. And now... It was somewhere between 3 and 6 in the morning. That's a long time to be struggling on the sea. They had been on that sea battling all night long. They were out of their minds with fear. It had been a rough stretch. What was Jesus thinking? Like you were thinking about when I was talking about the mama giraffe, right? What was she thinking? What was Jesus thinking? Not only did he wait a long time to come, but Mark chapter 6 and verse 48 says that, quote, he intended to pass by them, unquote. Have you ever felt like you're in a boat rowing like mad and one by one the waves are crashing in your face and you're wondering if Jesus is some sort of unfeeling, indifferent God who has lost interest in you? Have you ever felt like that? I have. I'll be honest with you. And I think sometimes he waits until we're at the end of our strength on purpose. I think he does it so that we can better understand the concept that without him, you and I can do nothing, as it says in John 15. But I also believe he wants, us to, sh- he wants to show us something else, something more than that, I, that we are never really without him. I think that's what he's really trying to underscore. He's always there, but sometimes he purposely makes us strain our eyes in the storm in order to see him. He stretches us. He waits until the last watch, until we're at the end of ourselves in fear. And why does he do that? Because he wants to meet us right there at the end of ourselves to build up our faith. He wants us to call out to him even when, especially when, he seems the furthest away from us like at 3 o'clock in the morning, as one author says, in the middle of a storm. Dale Bruner notes that according to the Holy Scriptures, human extremity is the frequent meeting place with God. Mark tells us that Jesus intended to pass by them, as I said earlier, on the water, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought it was a ghost. Why did Jesus want to pass by them? Well, one author points out that the verb that's used here to pass by is, a, is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as a technical term to refer to a theophany. You know what a theophany is? Theophany is uh, those. It's it's a it's, it's an appearance of God. Okay those defining moments when God makes a striking and temporary appearance in the earthly realm to to a select group of people or individual for the purpose of communicating a message. God put Moses in the cleft of a rock, right? So Moses could see what? His glory passing by. and the Lord passed before him, it says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 19. God told Elijah to stand on the mountain, for the Lord is about to pass by in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11 and following. See, there's a pattern to these stories. In each case, God had to get people's attention either through a burning bush or a wind or fire or walking on the water. With each person, God was going to call them to do something very extraordinary. In each situation, the person that God called felt afraid. But every time that people said yes to their calling, they experienced the power of God in their life. So when Jesus came to the disciples on the water, intending to pass by them, I think he was not just doing a neat, pas- uh, a neat magic trick for them. He was revealing his divine presence and power in that storm so that they would be strengthened to do the work that he was about to call them to do. Only God can do such a thing. He alone treads on the waves of the sea. So while Jeremiah was still in jail, in the midst of his stormy time in ministry, God's reassuring word came to him. In that still small voice, he said to Jeremiah, remember these words, Jeremiah 33, 3, Call to me, and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Or as the New Living Translation translates it, ask me and I'll tell you some remarkable secrets about what is going to happen here. Faith and trust in the person of Jesus is what dismantles the fear and the the fear that shortcuts or shortchanges our service for him. So when we experience separation, his divine position relieves our disappointment. When we experience storms in our life, his protection relieves our disillusionment. And finally, the third thing today is that in times of stress, His presence relieves our disability. Verses 26 and 27. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Here's the point at which we're ready to splinter under the stress that Jesus often reveals himself to us in that place. It's often at that point. And the worst part is that most of the time we don't even recognize him coming. We don't. The disciples experience what I call the Casper confusion here. Okay, you remember Casper the friendly ghost? When I was growing up? Because it reminds me so much of that cartoon, right? Casper was always showing up in that cartoon to help people in trouble, but they always responded in fear, didn't they? Enter the disciples here. Jesus sees them hurting and helpless. He comes to their aid, walking on the sea, and how do they react? They react in terror, crying out, it's a g-g-g-ghost, just like the cartoon. Mark chapter 6, verse 50 says that they all saw him And we're absolutely terrified. Can you relate to that? Because sometimes, you know, we're surprised by his appearance, as it says in verse 26. It's happened to me more times than I care to admit. There have been times when I found myself in a near panic, straining at the storm, crying out in fear, and I almost missed seeing Jesus in the midst of it all. I saw people doing it at the beginning of this pandemic, didn't you? people hoarding and stockpiling. Friends, we can get caught in the throes of conflict and completely miss the encounter with Jesus altogether. That's because we don't expect him to come. Do you expect him to come in your storm? Sometimes God uses the storms of life as his pathway to peace, as I said earlier. He lets us get scared enough to need him Then he comes close enough for us to see him. But sadly, too often, we often miss him. People just miss him all the time. I want to tell you, don't, I want to encourage you, don't miss him. Don't miss him right now in whatever it is that you might be experiencing. Because he doesn't always still the storm first. Sometimes it takes a storm for us to notice him, but when we finally catch a glimpse of him, we're not only surprised by his appearance, but just as quickly we're soothed by his voice. Look at verse 27. Immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I, do not be afraid. In his book, If You Want to Walk on Water, you Got to Get Out of the Boat, author John Ortberg observes this. He says, what would you guess is the most common command in Scripture? It's not for us to become more loving. That may be the core of God's desire for human life, but that's not the most frequent instruction. Writers about spiritual life often speak of pride as being the root of human fallenness but the Bible's most frequent imperative does not have to do with avoiding pride or gaining humility. It's not a command to guard sexual purity or walk with integrity, important as all those qualities are. The single command in Scripture that occurs more often than any other command in Scripture is the repeated instruction, fear not. Don't fear. Or the equivalent statements like, do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous. You can trust me. Don't fear. I think God says fear not so often because fear is the number one reason human beings are tempted to avoid doing what God asks them to do. So we need this command all the time. You probably heard that there are 366 fear knots in the Bible, one for every day of the year, including one for leap year. You probably read that somewhere, right? I'm just here to tell you that it's a nice idea and it's a great internet meme, but after doing some research, I don't think that's an accurate statement at all. It is, however, a very important command and much repeated command in the scripture. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a place for healthy fear, But but I want trust to be stronger than fear, don't you? I want my faith to be greater than fear. As one writer put it, I never want the no of fear to trump the yes of faith. So in the midst of their fear, Jesus said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. But read between these lines a little bit and something incredible will emerge. Because between the words take courage and don't be afraid is the most comforting and confidence-building truth about Jesus that you will ever encounter. What does it say in between take courage and do not be afraid? What does it say? It is I. It is I. You know what that is in the original language? It's literally the words... I am. I am. As in Exodus 3:14 when Moses says, "Who are you, Lord, that I could tell them your name?" and he says, "I am." This is the name of God. Beloved, in the middle of your storm, in between your fear and your weakness, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. He is. Take courage, Jesus says, "I am." Don't be afraid. Sound familiar? Because it's the lesson every man, woman, and child of God has had to learn. Words we all need to hear. Deuteronomy 31, verses 6 and 8. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And of course, the most familiar one in Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And there's one in the New Testament that's very similar in Hebrews chapter 13 in verses five and six. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Let me close with this. Have you ever feared driving over a high bridge? Anybody have that fear? If so, you're not alone. Jephyrophobia is the anxiety disorder or specific phobia characterized by the fear of bridges or tunnels. In fact, some people are so afraid of bridges that they will drive for hours out of their way in order to avoid going over bridges. Others try to cross, but then they have a panic attack in the middle of the bridge, and they stop, and they can't move, and they can't go on. They block traffic. So because of this, operators of some of the longest and highest spans in America, you know what they did? They started offering a driving service. On request, one of the bridge attendants will get behind the wheel and drive your car over the bridge if if you're too afraid to drive yourself. Listen, Between 1,200 to 1,400 calls are made every year to Michigan's driver's assistance program that provides motorists with a crew member to drive them across the Mackinac Bridge, which is five miles long and rises 200 feet above the water. The New York State Thruway Authority will lead Jafiraphobiacs over the Tappan Zee Bridge. A driver can call the authority in advance and arrange for someone to drive the car over the bridge for them. Here's one. The William Preston Lane Jr. Memorial Bridge, known as the Bay Bridge, spans nearly five miles of the Chesapeake Bay to connect Maryland's eastern and western shores. It stands 186 feet tall at its highest point, and this structure, which is regularly subject to violent storms, by the way, instills fear in thousands of Baltimore and Washington residents every time they drive across it. Anybody drive across that bridge? An entrepreneurial Maryland man is charging $25 to drive motorists in their own cars across one of the world's scariest bridges because they're too terrified to do it themselves. He says, quote, about 5,800 people use our service. One of the guys that is part of that uh, organization told the New York Times, aside from Kent Island Express, two other companies ferry drivers across that nightmare bridge. They're making money doing it. But you know what? Driving across bridges is not the only thing that causes fear in people's hearts. In any terrifying situation, The way to get over the paralysis of fear is to do like these motorists do to get across the bridge. They need to turn the wheel over to somebody else to drive. The way to get across the bridge of your fear and the storm in your life is to turn the situation over to God and then trust him with it. You have to cross that bridge, but you're not doing it alone, and God is the one in control, amen? Amen. Mark 6, 51 says, then he climbed into the boat and the wind stopped, and they just sat there, the disciples, unable to take it all in. You might be panicking at the thought of another storm in your life. You may even feel like you're on a sinking ship this morning. The winds are too strong, the waves are too high, and the journey seemingly way too hard. But let me give you some hope. Strain your eyes, look. Jesus is showing you himself. Perk your ears and listen. Open your eyes and see. He's trying to get your attention. Let him into your boat. You may be scared to death about crossing another spiritual bridge in your life, but the prospect of committing yourself to Christ maybe or moving from unbelief to belief is almost paralyzing to you. You must let Jesus take you across because in the presence of Christ, the storm can be stilled. The panic will subside. The decision, though, is yours. He came for you. He died for you. He rose for you. And he's making his appearance for you in the midst of that storm. Believe and turn it over to Christ. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me, Jesus once said. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is clearly living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as a soul, a spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And none of us, Lord, can escape your sight. We thank you that you see us always and you pray for us always. And I pray for each and every person that has heard these words this morning, if they're in the middle of a storm, that you would come to them and speak the soothing words. Take courage. I am. Do not be afraid. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.
0: What, a pro- what an appropriate song. 611, he hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. Let's stand and sing the first and the last verses of 611, and there is coffee time afterwards.
1: i